Listen, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. So open a new tab on your uh, computer or open a physical Bible if that's what you prefer. Uh, But we open our Bibles every week here at Neighborhood Bible Church. It seems like the right thing to do, so that's what we tend to do. I am lit up this morning about the providence of God. The one who sees the beginning from the end is on display all the time. We just sang All authority is yours. Every victory is yours. That's the topic for this morning. God is orchestrating just what is needed and just when it is needed. Let me tell you one of the challenges for church leaders. When COVID hit, um, church leaders were forced to answer this question. Should we stop what we had planned to preach on, and should we spotlight what the Bible has to say about things like anxiety, things like worldwide crises, living in a fallen world, end times, whatever might be going on. Then, weeks later, George Floyd dies in front of a nation at the hands of an officer of the law. Again, should churches stop and discuss authority, abuse, justice, use of force, proper resistance, those kinds of topics? I want to assure you, church, that One of the things that's gone on is, um, as elders, we have begun to meet every single week uh, since since everything began. And our team, uh, it's it's predictable that they stepped up and have been serving you behind the scenes in some in really incredible ways. Um, It it's not a surprise to me, but it's also a test of leadership that's been passed. And our continuing in the Gospel of Luke, our continuing to teach through this book, has not been an exercise in an ostrich burying its head, just plowing ahead, not listening to what's going on around us. Rather, it has been and will continue to be an exercise in keeping in step with the Spirit. We too said, God, you want us to stop altar looking at the gospel of Luke and you want us to to pull off the the off-ramp, which we have freedom to do and discuss things and and do special series on that. We think there's coming days where where we might do that very thing, but we got a clear sense from the Lord, press on in Luke. And it's been so powerful for, for God to show off how he has been leading our continuation in Luke. I don't even have time to go into all of it, but being in Christ means that it informs all of our lives, not just the church parts. There actually is no such thing as a church part to a person's life and a non-church part. Jesus explodes that myth, and that's what we're seeing in the Gospel of Luke. Let me give you just a couple of highlights. A couple of weeks ago, in telling his disciples, hey, you're going to find a donkey, talk to this person, get it for me, and in predicting his own death and, and torture in Jerusalem in a few days, Jesus is showing off um, that he is in charge of world events, little tiny ones that involve donkeys and giant ones that change the entire history of the world. Jesus speaks boldly, powerfully, and clearly because he's in authority, and that's on display for us. Jesus reminds us in another passage the urgency of investing our one talent, our one life for good. And that we're going to give an account for it. With Zacchaeus, Jesus changes a life with a single meal. And when he goes in and he meets with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus pursues justice. Meeting Jesus creates change. Zacchaeus doesn't just say, I'm sorry. He doesn't just give a testimony at the temple. It's not just with words, but it is by returning what he stole. Today... Jesus' authority is questioned. 
And this comes on the heels of him questioning authority. Do you see how timely this is? Questioning authority is a daily sport right now. If you're a leader, it's open season on leadership, on authority. If you're in authority at any level, whether that's in the home, parents, grandparents, people raising children, uh, whether that's in school, whether that's in government, whether that is in the church, if you are in leadership, you are being tested right now. Your foundation, your grit, your character are beginning to show, aren't they? Leaders live their whole lives being second-guessed. It comes with the job. Leaders also get unwarranted and unwelcome and unasked-for praise, and leaders get unwarranted, unasked-for criticism. And that's going on right now with leaders of all levels. And leaders are held accountable for what their policies, what their decisions, what their actions, what their character produces. This is all right and good and from God. You know what's not from God? Rebellion to the concept of authority. God is the author of authority. And what that means is this. It means that authority and submission, head-subordinate relationships, are not bad words. They're not bad concepts. As creator of the whole universe, all authority is derivative. Meaning this, it's not original, it's not invented by others. It starts and begins with God. It also means that all authority ought to be judged by the standard of good. And who's good but God alone? Jesus questioned authority and Jesus had his authority questioned. Do you see that? Jesus questioned authority and Jesus had his authority questioned. That's what this passage looks at today. So I want you to take your cues from him. This morning, right now, take a moment, take a deep breath, and let's do what the book of James tells us to do, to meekly receive the implanted word. I pray that the Holy Spirit today is your primary teacher. I pray that I'm just a mouthpiece to kind of steer your thought toward some things. But God is your teacher. Meekly receive the implanted word. Lay aside your concept of authority. What has you riled up right now? What has you fearful? What has you burying your head? And let's take our cues from Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to receive what you have for me today. Here's a live chat question that I have for you this morning. And you can post this if that's the kind of thing that floats your boat. Are you naturally more compliant or are you naturally more contrary? If you're willing to share that, put that out there. Secondly, on a scale of 10, how comfortable are you in conflict? If you answer one, here's what one means. One means the person who says, don't even ask me that question because I don't even know the answer that might create the least amount of conflict. If that's you, that's a one. Um, if, if you're the person who immediately sees that and, and says, who says you get to ask me that question? In fact, I challenge your numbering system. You would put a five on that, okay? So that's our scale, one to five, on how comfortable are you in conflict? I live in a household with a lot of people. We break the law every single day because we have more gathered in one place um, than is allotted by our county. They don't account for families our size. Let me say this, that conflict arises all the time in our home. (gasps) But you're the pastor. I know, right? 
It happens all the time in our home. Yesterday, I found myself praying, God, just remove the conflict from what's going on right now. Here's what happens when conflict goes on in our home. Think about this for yourself. When there's conflict happening that does not involve you, uh, there are some people who move toward conflict. Any conflict. Even if it's not their conflict, they move toward this. We have some individuals who live in our home. We think they are going to be the captain of the speech and debate club someday because if there's conflict in our household or on our block, they're going to run towards that conflict. They're going to be a part of it. These are people who are comfortable with conflict. We have others who when conflict happens, they want to run, scurry, hide, get away from it. Even in their own conflict, something that involves them, they want to shut down and walk away from. Here's the thing. Jesus takes those who are crazy comfortable with conflict and he softens them. He is their peace. He begins to teach them, not your fight, not your battle, trust in me. And he moves those who are more naturally compliant, who hate conflict, who will avoid it at all cost. He gives them courage and boldness to step into difficult conversations, to stay with a relationship when there's conflict because there will be conflict there. I want to warn you, if you don't yet follow Christ, there's an invitation going out to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you receive that invitation and you join yourself with Jesus at the hip, you will lead a life of conflict. Conflict awaits disciples of Jesus. To follow him brings about opposition, debate, and a certain level of ongoing, underlying misunderstanding about what's really going on. We're celebrating communion this morning in the early church. Uh, the secular society around the way, which is what they referred to these early Christians as. They thought they were cannibals. Because they celebrated this feast where they ate the body and blood of their Lord and Savior Jesus. There was misunderstanding that went on. They thought that there was incest going on in this early sect. Why? Because they called each other brother and sister and married within brother and sister. There is an underlying misunderstanding that will go on if you are a Christian. Let me show you my title slide for this morning. Symbols of authority and revolt overlaid one on top of the other. This is both a statement of our times and a reminder of just the election season, the idea that, that authority is not only in question, but it's front and center right now. I intentionally put something up that are very emotional. Why? Because flags and fists are not just flags and fists, are they? They are symbolic of something else. I wanted those strong emotional symbols to be right in front of our face this morning, because if we miss the temple that is at the very heart of the holy city of Jerusalem, and all this is happening during Passover season, if we miss those rich symbols, we will gloss over the emotion that is on display and the undercurrent of what's going on. Jesus is sitting in the place of teacher, of rabbi, and it's hugely symbolic. It stirs up national and theological and ethical issues that are going on. If you missed last week, the cleansing of the temple is this idea of a new sheriff riding into town, right? And Jesus drives out the bullies who have badges. He restores order in the court. He does so on a lowly donkey with no army, no posse, no firearms. His overthrow of the establishment is a demonstration of authority 
by table flip, flip, flipping. But bullies don't go away quietly, do they? They don't give up their ground and slink away. Enemies of God and good fight for territory that they once held. Man, that's a good spiritual principle for us. So now they've regrouped, and they are now trying to press their advantage on Jesus. Why? Because the temple leaders have the home court, so they think. This is their territory. This is their turf. They're going to go in with their kind of moxie and challenge Jesus' authority. So today, question uh, authority is question. Luke chapter 20, verse 1 says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, uh, let me stop there. Um, so one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, the next two chapters, all of Luke 20, all of Luke 21, um, Luke is going to let us in on this little temple sermon series. What's Jesus going to do when he drives out the bullies with badges? Now he sets up shop and he teaches. What's that Bible study like? I can assure you this, it's not polite Sunday school fare. It is argumentative. It is pointed. There is challenging teaching going on, and we get a little snippet of what's being taught. It says here that he's preaching the gospel. I want to hit pause because we're going to move on from this, but so powerful. Jesus is showing us the importance and the centrality of the gospel right up until he dies. This is days before he's going to be arrested and hung on a cross. He is preaching the gospel to the end. How important is the gospel? It's vitally important. What is the gospel exactly? When we say that, it means good news. Let me walk you through very quickly. God made humankind in his image and to live in right relationship. That's Genesis 1. A few verses in, we see that humans break this by rejecting God's ways and by rejecting him and inviting sin into their their lives and into the earth. They now bear the fruit that sin brings, which is death. God rescues people by sending his son Jesus to suffer the just consequence for sin, dying in our place to pay sin's price. And what's left is this. God invites and requires all people everywhere to repent, which means turn from their sin and turn to God and receive his invitation of life eternal. Jesus came to seek and to save lost people. That's his mission. Those who are in need, those who know they are bound to sin. Do you ever think, I'm bound to do this anyways? That means you're starting to recognize you're bound to sin. Those who have come to realize, I just can't help myself. If those have ever left your mouth, those words are an indication that you're ripe and ready for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because those who can't help themselves begin to look elsewhere for help. That's the message of the gospel. You can't help yourself. Jesus is there to help you. Those are the ones who come in and get Jesus. They're the ones who say yes to Jesus and get into his party. Here's the good news. He's still inviting, and people are still RSVPing yes to his invitation. You know who doesn't get it and therefore doesn't get in? Brace yourself. Prideful, blind people. That is really harsh, but it's really biblical. Instead of coming to Jesus, these people come at Jesus. Big difference. Coming to Jesus is humility. Coming at Jesus is full of pride. 
People caught up in self-righteousness have no need of God-gifted righteousness. Pride, in fact, blinds people to the utter danger that they are in. Now watch this. Sadly, then, biblical times, and now, 2020, churches and mosques and synagogues and temples are places that can hide people like we see in Luke 20 who are coming at Jesus ready to kill him, full of pride and full of hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't run and hide. He doesn't bowl them over and take off. He loves them firmly and brilliantly to the end as we see. He is lovingly going to expose their false ideas. Now, due to COVID craziness, our young people this summer did not get to go to Hume Lake Summer Camp, which they sometimes do. They did not get to travel up to the Tenderloin District of San Francisco to serve and help the underserved up in that region uh, of, of, our, of our area. Instead, our youth leaders dreamt up something for them, and they stayed here, and teens all this last week have been here on campus with a smile on their face, working hard to beautify, repair, upgrade the building. It's been awesome. You're going to see a video next week. You're going to see paint and staining going on and pressure washing, all kinds of really, really amazing stuff. And so while we had all of these young people here, I thought, man, I'm going to grab a couple of them and let them read our passage today. Um, So the first, this is Andrew Duncan, and he's going to read. So starting Luke chapter chapter 20, starting in verse 1, this guy talks faster than I do. Okay, we only did this in two takes. The first take was at about 1.5 speed of what you're about to hear. Buckle up, listen carefully, follow along. Luke chapter 20, verse 1. Okay, it's rolling. Luke 20, verses 1 through 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes of the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question, now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they came that that they did not so they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, Luke twenty, verses one through eight. Woo! Good job, Andrew. Thank you for that. All right, so shots fired, right? It's on. Uh, And now the sparring begins. We have a little authority competition that's going on. Now, you could certainly say, well, he started it, Jesus, right? And he did. He comes in and questions the authority that's there, both by proclamation, preaching God's word, and by declaration, by driving out the people who were selling things. The chief, when it says the chief priests, the scribes, and all the elders. When this group is mentioned, it's mentioned later on in Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, which we're going to see uh, in, in just a little bit. But this represents the whole of temple leadership. Remember the man from, from last week, 1968? Who's the man? Well, if there was a, the man in the ancient Near East, it would be these guys. It would be this group of people coming at Jesus with their well-formed, so they think, question. And essentially, they're asking him this, who do you think you are? You have no credentials. You have no pedigree. You have no title. You have no position. Do you see the picture? Jesus is entirely outside of the establishment. 
and rightfully for the establishment, this riles them up. So Jesus then, he's already turned some tables over, he's now turning a metaphorical table over, and he turns their question back on them. Jesus has a habit of answering a question with another question. Verse 4, he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Short little question, a few words, brilliant. If you look at this and you understand it, this is verbal judo. It's just completely a reversal of what just happened. He traps them into having to answer their own question. You want to question my authority? Let me question yours first. It forces them. Here's the brilliance of this question. It forces them to publicly go on record about John the Baptist. This is really critical because John proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. So if they said John's a prophet from heaven, then the answer is already there, right? This is a catch-22 for them. If they say that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to prove that, well, then just listen to what he said about me, right? And of course, they're, they're fearful of the crowd if they answer no. So his question, and then there's sort of their bumbling huddle. You, you kind of get this picture of them going, hang on a second. They all kind of huddle together. They discuss the options. There's no real good solution. But their bumbling huddle and his question reveals something really important. Here it is. Ready? The establishment, these leaders, are far more concerned about the outcome politically than they are about the truth. See if this rings true at all today in things that you observe. The establishment of the temple was far more concerned about public opinion, about the outcome politically, rather than than the truth. If they can't or won't pursue truth, it means they're not fit to lead. Jesus is shining the light on that. If they can't or won't recognize a prophet from God, and these are the leaders in God's house, then they aren't fit to lead, and Jesus is shining light on that. These leaders don't know the first thing about authority and leadership. While trying to trap Jesus, they are ensnared in their own cul-de-sac small thinking, tiny understanding of what their position and leadership and authority is all about. Is this ever important for us today? Let me say this really clearly, that questioning authority is nothing new. This has always been the case, and it always will be the case, But never in recent memory has it been on more people's minds. Probably never in recent memory has it been more visible on our TV screens. There is an air of lawlessness going on in our cities right now. Any of you watching ever questioned the decisions, policies, talking heads, or leaders of late? I see your heads nodding yes. We get whiplash sometimes because every leader is making decisions and policies on incomplete information. If you were to plot just all the ways the talking heads have made absolute statements about COVID, about race relations, about all kinds of things, it would make your head snap all over to try and plot that. And there doesn't seem to be any accountability for going back and saying, I was wrong. There's a giant lack of humility that says, we just don't know, but we're moving forward on the best we have, and we think for now it's this. 
Question authority is the slogan of the young. It's the slogan of the rebel. It is the slogan of the thinker. It's the slogan of the anarchist. And it is the slogan of the Christian. Question authority. I hope you see this. Not all questioning of authority is the same. There's a giant difference. Here's a question for you. Do you ever question your own questioning of authority? Let me make an authoritative statement. Ready? I think you should. And I think the Bible stands behind me that you should question your own questioning of authority. I want you to consider the following. Some questioning authority comes from a rebellious place. That is, these are people uh, that intend to question all authority. They're going to ignore reason. They're going to ignore wisdom. They're going to live in rebellious chaos. There's no interest in truth. There's no interest in submission of any kind. Let me say this really clearly. This is sin and must be repented of or else sure destruction awaits. This is the fool found throughout the Proverbs. That's one kind of questioning authority. Some question authority because it's a popular thing with the in crowd or with the crowd that this person identifies with. They question authority, but they really feel more passionate about fitting in and saying the right things at the right times and being on certain sides of an issue. And like the temple leadership, It has very little to do with the truth in their heart or maybe even understanding the issues. It has everything to do with popularity of the crowd, either fear of the crowd or wanting to fit in. This is called people-pleasing. And if you're trapped people-pleasing, God wants to free you from that and be a God-pleasing person, which I said a few minutes ago, will invite debate, criticism, conflict, ongoing misunderstanding. It's a huge temptation to be a people pleaser. It's something I struggle with, something that God has brought me a long way in. I pray regularly, God, just give me the courage to just say things how they are. People pleasing is sinful, and it's only a fool who will chase the wind of fitting in with what the popular crowd thinks is cool at the moment. Here's another kind of questioning authority. Some question authority like a knee-jerk reaction. One time I was playing a guitar in the early 90s, A guitar string broke, snapped up, and it cut my eye. It cut the inside of my eye. Steel string guitar whipping up, and it snapped my eye. Do you know that to this day, if you watch for it, if I'm ever strumming a guitar, and I go like that, that has nothing to do with me rocking out. That is me instinctively flexing. I can't help myself. Every time I break a guitar string, I don't break guitars often. That was once I repented. Every time I break a guitar string, I instinctively sort of twinge back. I can't help myself. You know why? Because I was injured before. Some of you question authority instinctively because you've had a long series of hurtful, broken authority as your example. Do you know that God can and will and wants to heal you in that? He wants to meet you in your instinctive reflex to reject all authority. 
I want you to write down Ephesians chapter 5, right before talking about a whole string of very specific things of how head-subordinate relationships work under the glory of God. There's an overarching verse that says, submit therefore to one another. There is a mutual submission that goes on even in head-subordinate relationships. Watch for it. It's powerful. Finally, let me give you a fourth kind of questioning authority. I think some question authority with integrity. Knowing that to sit silent or inactive at decisions and policies would be to act in concert with the authority that is acting against God. You don't have to be a Christian. I think you can act with with total integrity, meaning you're an integrated person. You're not doing this for ulterior motives, and, and you are questioning authority. This kind of questioning is from God and is good. I want you to look at Jesus for a moment, uh, even from our text. Jesus' hope was not in, in, in earthly authority. It was in ultimate authority. Get this in your head. Jesus' hope was not in earthly authority. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. This means as a Christian and a political person, how do you marry those? It means you are deeply involved in the political process. You're paying attention. You're watching for things. You're engaged. You're speaking on it. And simultaneously... You hold loosely to whoever comes into power. We've watched this before. uh, Democrat, Republican. Democrat, Republican. We've watched regimes come and go. Someone described authority and political systems like a house. You put a lot of time and and whatnot into it, but the, the, the real sustaining thing, you can move on from a house. The house isn't the thing. It's the home you make of it. So Jesus is not looking uh, for his hope in man, uh, and Jesus is not ignorant or disengaged from the process. Here's what he does do. Jesus questions authority because what was going on in the temple was beyond questionable. It was evil. So in this instance, he steps in and takes action. Now remember, Jesus is the perfect person. He has perfect insight. He has perfect judgment. How many times Jesus' name has been attached to table flipping and it's not from God. I think we can attach Jesus too quickly, feeling righteous from ourself with imperfect insight. If you're taking a stand on something, it ought to still bear the fruit of the Spirit. It ought to still bear the mark of Jesus as you take a stand on something. Here's number two. Jesus questioned authority in light of Scripture. Remember when he comes in and says, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, he made it a den of robbers? That's a hybrid of two Old Testament passages. Later on today, he's going to quote the Old Testament. He, he, is, he is pouring out Scripture because that's what's on his heart and that's what's on his mind. Finally, Jesus questions authority as one willingly under authority. He is repeatedly clear about whose will he is here to complete and who he is um, trying to please. It's his Father in heaven. Submitting to authority is a little bit like a carabiner and a harness. If you've ever gone rappelling or any kind of rock climbing whatsoever, uh, unless you're at a gym and you're only a few feet off the ground and there's nice soft pads, you're going to wear a harness and a carabiner and you're going to be clipping into some things. Submitting to authority is like that. We choose to clip in and trust based on incomplete information. Let me say that again. We choose 
to submit, to clip in and trust based on incomplete information. This is why submission is so hard, because we have incomplete information. Here's the key question for us. Look at this little bolt that this woman has her life hanging on. Will it hold? When you are clipping your life, when you are submitting to authority, you are consciously or unconsciously asking the question, is this going to hold? We all clip into something or someone. Leaders, parents, you're a leader, teachers, coaches, cops, government officials, pastors, on and on it goes. Very high levels, very low levels. Leaders are endowed with trust. People are clipping in and trusting them. There is great power, look at this image, to hold up, to sustain, to serve. And there is massive power to ruin lives if authority, if leaders prove untrustworthy. Those who've been burned long enough chuck all leadership and say the whole thing's broken. It's wrong. These are people who say they are under no authority whatsoever. Now, we all celebrate Alex Honnold, who climbed El Capitan free solo. He climbed it without any gear, okay? Um, Free climbers, I've watched a lot of documentaries on rock climbing for some reason during COVID. Free climbers have a long and tragic history of dying young, of dying before their time. Because it's only a matter of time. If you are under no authority or an anarchist, and you are just going off of your own grips and holds, it's only a matter of time before destruction is sure to come. Here's the question of the hour. Who are you clipped into? Who are you submitting to? Being a Christian is clipping into Jesus. We put our entire trust in Him. And He calls us, frankly, to great heights. I pray that it's not said of any of you here that you have blindly accepted the religion, the politics, or truths that have just been fed to you. I pray that you have tested. I pray that you have invested, investigated. I pray you know why you believe what you believe. Blind faith is not biblical faith. Blind faith is not what Jesus is calling us to. Luke starts this entire gospel saying that there are many convincing proofs, and he wants to lay them out for us to see. So, question authority and question your questioning of authority. Let me move on. With the tension super thick and heavy, Jesus tells a little story, and Sadie Cook's going to take it away and pick it up in verse 9. So, Sadie, go for it. Luke 29 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to two tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one was all, they also ruined and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is is the heir. Let us kill him, so that inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, 
What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, so with the tension high, uh, Jesus doesn't ease back. He actually presses in with a penetrating story. The story is about various responses to authority, and it is clearly leveled at the sham authority that is running the temple. It's clear because of the content, but it's doubly clear because of their response to the story. So the story is one of owner and renter. This is a, this is a fairly commonplace relationship that would have been very common for people uh, in that day and age. The tenants are the leaders of Israel. The servants who are sent to collect, those are the prophets of God. Who's the owner? God. Who's the beloved son? It's Jesus who's telling the story. The tenants misunderstand the absence of the owner. They either thought him dead or feeble or as one lacking the willpower to oppose them. They think they are getting away with things, and so they keep pressing their luck. They are farming without paying up on what they are making in crops. Now, they couldn't have been more wrong about the owner, about his intent, about his character, about his power, about his presence. And it costs them dearly in the end. Hear me, the owner is God. The owner's absence was not disinterest. It was not weakness. It wasn't ignorance. The owner's absence was patience, waiting for them to come around. Jesus is telling this story, looking back on Israel's putrid history of killing the prophets of God. It's laying out. This is the very city where the prophets of God come to collect, and they're killed. But it's also looking forward, isn't it? In just a few days, Jesus will be tortured and executed on a Roman cross at the hands of the Jews. He is the beloved son sent to collect, and the tenants misrepresent and misread the owner. The moral of the story is not lost on them. They protest. Verse 16, when they heard this, they said, surely not, instead of being outraged at the injustice of it. They're outraged that they're seen as the tenant farmers. In verse 17, Jesus doesn't let them off the hook, doesn't ease back. It says he looked directly at them to get the point across. Now he switches stories and mixes metaphors. Why does he do that all of a sudden? He goes from tenant farmers and renters to stones and buildings. When I was on staff at Los Gatos Christian Church, we had a, a guy on staff with us named Rick, and, um, and he had this famous way of mixing metaphors. And it would always happen at just the wrong time. Now, I was the young, punk, junior high pastor. I tended to think things were funny when they probably weren't. I tended to sort of laugh and make light of things when I probably shouldn't have. But there was one time that was just too much. We're in a very, very serious meeting. There's probably 15 people around the table. And Rick gets up, and he's driving home his point. And he slams his hand down on the table, and he pulls out one of his famous Rick mixed metaphors. And he goes, guys, I feel like we're just... Spinning our balls. And I sat there as the guy who tends to laugh when he shouldn't. And I thought, no, this is just too funny. So I burst out laughing. And everyone burst out laughing. I think he was making a mixed metaphor of spinning our wheels like stuck in the mud. And maybe juggling balls in the air like we're just not doing anything. But whatever his point was, was lost in the moment. Because he mixed metaphors. Now, hear me clearly. 
Jesus is not Rick. Jesus isn't doing this accidentally. He's not just randomly throwing it in. Why does he switch now to builders and rocks? Here's what I think is happening. First of all, there's probably a little play on words here because in the Hebrew, sun and stone are very close. Ben and Eben, sort of together. So I think there's a little, a little play on words. He is, of course, both the sun in the story and the stone that the builders reject. After his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus' disciples are set on fire in their witness. Before the rulers and elders and priests, does that sound familiar? Peter and John bring up this very same concept of rejection and building. You know what they're in trouble for, by the way? You know why they're brought before the establishment? Here it is. They were healing a cripple in the name of Jesus. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Listen carefully. Peter speaks up and says, Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isn't this awesome? How many in that setting could think back to this very sermon Jesus is giving, predicting, hey, you leaders of Israel, you're rejecting the cornerstone. You're missing the most important thing. Now, this story is very clearly aimed at a very specific group of people in a very specific context, the sham leaders of the temple. However, do not miss the principles and the questions and the challenges that it puts before us. Here's two that I came up with. Number one is this, that sin causes us to live as if we are owners instead of tenants who will one day give an account. Sin blinds us to the reality of things. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Let that just settle into your own heart first. Let it settle into the way you view our world. The boasting that goes on as if we are owners of it all. Here's number two. Sin causes us to misread the owner uh, and, and the owner's um, inaction and absence. Sometimes we think, well, God must not care or see or be power enough, powerful enough to stop this. We just sang this as the way maker. God, you're at work even when I can't see it. You are at work. Worse, we can tend to take action like the tenants and begin to malign the name of the owner or mistreat the owner's son. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Watch this, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the gospel, friends. This is what I preach. The day of salvation is now. He's opened up his love to you. Now it's RSVP. Respond to it. This passage goes on to give the warning. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Hearing the gospel excludes you from claiming ignorance. You either fall on the stone by rejecting Jesus, or the stone of condemnation falls on you. Either way, it's disastrous. Jesus provides the only alternative, the better way, the third option. What is it? Build on the stone. Jesus is the stone to build your life upon. I close with this thought. There's a lot about leadership in here, a lot about authority. The, the author of authority told us the way to lead and submit. The author of, a to, of authority showed us the way to lead and submit. And the author of authority is with us on the way as we lead and as we submit. If you want to climb the laddership, the, the leadership ladder, Laddership would be a more efficient way to say that. In Christ, here's what you do. You get lower and lower. You get more, serving more and more people. Who did the greatest serve? All people. Here comes the Lamb of God, the, the servant, the Savior of the entire world. The best and most capable leaders, the ones you ought to clip into and submit to, are the ones who have learned the most about joyful submission Submissive followership. Tons of books on leadership, very few on followership. I want to assure you that we are doing what serves our church family best. This is a closing word from the church leadership to you. I want you to know that we argue and debate and pray and wrestle about what to do next because this is an ever changing time and climate. We are committed to not letting this multifaceted crisis divide our church. Do you know whose help we need with that aside from God? Yours. We need your help to not let the crisis turn on each other. We're also committed to being a blessing to our neighborhood. We're committed to not just turning inward in a crisis and serving ourselves. We're committed to say, God, you have enough resources to provide for us and let it be a blessing to those around us. We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. Andres is going to lead us in that. And in the meantime, we're going to sing a song uh, that speaks to uh, setting our hearts ready for that. There's a West King lyric that says this, Love peace, but be willing to fight. I've tried to teach my children this. Love peace, children, but be ready to fight. That's a good sentiment. I want you to listen to Ephesians 2 that expresses a glorious truth about Jesus Christ's cross demolishing the hostility that exists. For he himself is our peace. He has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandment expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
God, there's hostility in our worlds. There's hostility within ourselves. And God, you are our peace. God, right now, I pray that as a church, people watching now, people that will watch in an hour or so because they forgot a time change, that we can, like children, rest in our existence, rest in the fact that we're at your table and that you have control. All authority, every victory is yours. God, prep our hearts. Amen.